Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Just want to get the music in here a little bit. Mercy Street, the critically acclaimed drama set in a Civil War hospital, begins its second season next month on PBS and WITF-TV. Unlike most shows, films, or stories with the Civil War as a backdrop, Mercy Street is not about battles or military or political leaders, but instead focuses on rich characters struggling with their challenges and does it in a way that is real and historically accurate. We talk Mercy Street today on Smart Talk. Joining us is Lisa Wolfinger, who is the co-creator and executive producer of Mercy Street. Lisa, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Audrey Davis is a Mercy Street historical consultant. She's also director of the Alexandria, Virginia Black History Museum. Ms. Davis, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Ian Isherwood is a visiting assistant professor of war and memory studies at Gettysburg College. Dr. Isherwood, good to see you again, too. Good seeing you, too. We know we have a lot of history buffs out there. We know have a, we have a lot of fans of Mercy Street out there. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Lisa Wolfinger, let me start with you. I mean, a, a year ago, we had a conversation about the debut of the program, the premiere of the program, and, uh, you know, we were in Gettysburg, which we're going to be again next month, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, just a, a fantastic way to start uh, the series, and I, I talked to so many people who are fans. When you look back on that first season, what are your thoughts? Oh, gosh. Um, well, we, we, we were very ambitious in, in season one. Um, we had we, we introduced a lot of characters. Um, you know, we had a lot of stories to tell, and it's been such a delight to be able to, to jump into a season two and uh, really, really, you know, expand the storylines and get a little deeper into into the war. Well, okay, let's talk about that season one. And, and you know, I have to understand that there are people who may not have seen season one who may be seen it for the first time uh, this year. But uh, what were you trying to do when you brought the episodes uh, to PBS? What were you trying to, what stories were you trying to tell? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I was initially inspired by the stories of doctors and female volunteer nurses who were in many ways the unsung heroes of the war. Um, and there was one nurse in particular that caught my attention, Mary Finney, Baroness von Olnhausen, who worked in various Union hospitals throughout the war. But, but one in particular was very interesting. That was Mansion House Hospital in Alexandria, Virginia. Now, Alexandria was a Confederate town occupied by the Union all four years of the war. So it gave us North and South built in, which was very interesting to me. So Alexandria was a, you know, it was an army town, a hospital town. It was a border town, but and it was also the destination point for thousands of African Americans escaping bondage. And so it just gave us this this cauldron of uh, of voices, conflicting voices, uh, conflicting experiences, and politics. And that's what interested me, and that's what I brought to PBS. And I said, look, this is an opportunity to tell. Uh, a story about the Civil War that's never been told before, and it's really a story about the home front. It's a story about people like you and me. It's a, it's a story about messy, contradictory human beings who are trying to survive in the middle of conflict and chaos. 
And, you know, all those things you could see in that in that first season. But uh, Alexandria as as a backdrop and uh, Audrey Davis, I'm going to bring you into this conversation in just a moment. But using Alexandria as a backdrop presents so many storylines in itself. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, it, I, as I mentioned, I mean, it was a border town, and it was the destination point for for all these uh, African Americans escaping bondage. So it became, um, you know, it, it, it all these. I, I hate to, word the, to, to use the word ghetto, but these these communities of escaped slaves, um, you know, ended up in and around Alexandria, and of course they were destitute and. Uh, it really pre- presented a refugee crisis, and certainly Audrey can talk about that uh, better than I can. Well, Audrey Davis, uh, you are a historical consultant with uh, Mercy Street and director of Alexandria's Black History Museum. Uh, I mean, this has to be kind of a gift thrown into your lap when they're using Alexandria as the backdrop. But uh, So what do you think when those storylines, you see those storylines on Mercy Street using Alexandria as the backdrop? Well, I think it's wonderful for us, and it's been terrific for tourism for the city. We have such great history in Alexandria, and for it to be highlighted in a show like Mercy Street has been a wonderful gift for us. And with the African-American experience in Alexandria, you have everything. You have an enslaved population at the time of occupation. You have a free black population already established in Alexandria. And then you have the thousands of contraband who are coming into Alexandria seeking protection by the Union Army and who, as Lisa was saying, created a humanitarian crisis and a refugee crisis here uh, in Alexandria because the city being occupied was not prepared for the numbers of people who were coming in. And you're seeing these men, women, and children who are self-emancipating, who want a chance at freedom and know that if they can get to a Union stronghold, they have an opportunity for that. You use the, the term contraband. Uh, that's something that I, I believe that word, and you tell me, but uh, I believe that word was used most often uh, during that era, during the Civil War. But it's not one that many people use today, or at least not many people uh, who you know are not historians. Uh, was that the, the, the term that was used for uh, free blacks and African Americans, former slaves? Well, the term was actually coined by General uh, Benjamin Franklin Butler in, in Hampton at Fort Monroe in May of 1861 when he gave asylum to three Confederate slaves who had come to the fort uh, seeking a- asylum from him, and he granted it because he felt by sending them back to their masters, as he should have done, he would have been uh, giving, making, enabling the Confederate cause to move forward because their labor would have been used for that. But by keeping them, making them contraband of war, he could use their labor to enrich the Union cause. So you see that term, um, or, and you see Butler credited with that term, but I was also reading recently that as um, far back as the War of 1812, um, contraband of war has been used to uh, refer to um, a people who are being used to help move uh, a war effort forward. So, yes, it's a term that was used in the 19th century, 
but you don't really uh, hear this term in this context used very much today. Mm. Uh, Lisa, and uh, we want to talk a lot about uh, his history and historical accuracy, but uh, before I bring Dr. Isherwood into uh, the, the conversation, you know, again, go back to last year when before this uh, series even premiered, uh, historical accuracy was very, very important to you, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I put together a, uh, a panel of advisors in season one, um, including um, Audrey Davis and also James McPherson uh, and, and some other preeminent scholars in their fields. And then what was interesting as we, as we, um, as we got into season two and breaking down storylines for season two, we realized, we realized we needed more advisors. We needed, um, you know, more specialists. And uh, and so we you know we brought more and more people in. I mean we've been talking a little bit about the contraband storyline, and you know we touched on that in season one, uh, specifically for the character of Aurelia, the laundress, who was a contraband. And then in season two we we decided it was such a fascinating, such a rich chapter of history that that really people knew people knew very little about. We decided to dig a little deeper in season two, and so we introduce a new character in season two who's a, uh, a black northern abolitionist. Uh, her, her name is Charlotte Jenkins, and she was inspired by a real-life character, Harriet Jacobs, who was an ex-slave and an activist who spent uh, the, the war years in Alexandria helping refugee slaves transition to freedom. So, um, you know, certainly, you know, the history is important, and and we we draw our inspiration from the history. We draw our inspiration from facts, um, and then as we write the scripts, we go back and forth with our advisors. The bottom line is, though, it's it is historical fiction. It is historical drama. So you know, we need to take liberties to be able to weave all these characters and storylines together. But it is all rooted in fact. But why was being historically accurate important to you? Well, it's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I studied history and as an undergraduate, uh, I actually went to university in England and uh, I read uh, European history. And I, I am American. I was born in America, but my father worked as a banker, and uh, and we we lived all over the world. And I ended up back here in my twenties, and uh, ended up in making documentaries, specifically documentaries about history. And for whatever reason, I was pulled into American history, and for me, it was uh, it was a wonderful new discovery. And uh, and I was I kind of worked my way up through American history, starting with uh, with the Pilgrims and. Uh, and moving moving on up through t the timeline and ended up with the Civil War. Dr. Ian Isherwood is a visiting assistant professor of war and memory studies at Gettysburg College. Dr. Isherwood, uh, you know, you do this every day. Uh, it has to be a thrill for a historian to be, be able to see this on a television screen, though, something that is depicted and depicted accurately. It's very interesting um, because shows shows like Mercy Street they um, they are imaginations of of the past and so they are um, they are kind of inspired historical fiction but at the same time um, and last year we touched upon this uh, on our previous conversation about the fact that the that the producers and scriptwriters have kind of gone out of their way to uh, to verify 
uh, a lot of the details of this show. And that makes it very interesting from a historical perspective um, in that we, you know, we in the classroom when you're practicing history and when you're and when you're when you uh, are trying to teach students like historical methodology it's it's oftentimes very interesting to have a tool like mercy street or to have a historical novel that you can then investigate and say well what is this not only telling us about the past um what's it trying to show us about the past but also what issues are uh, really inspiring in our present that the writers are trying to bring to the forefront. And I think in the show you see a number of different different issues in the American Civil War that still have continued resonance. Well, and give me some examples. So some of, some of the examples are that um, in terms of the way in which we evaluate kind of history or military history, uh, there's been a movement in the last kind of 40 years or so by historians to kind of move beyond the battlefield and to investigate other stories within within history. Uh, the role the role of women um, and gender dynamics and gender interplay during the war. Um, of course, issues of race and identity are incredibly important to this show. And this show is in many ways reflecting those currents where people are very interested not just in what happens in the battlefield, but are very interesting in and how everyday people are living their lives in times of great chaos, in times of great violence, in times of great insecurity. And I think that that's a message that resonates. You say that uh, you are able to use a, a show like Mercy Street in the classroom. Have you actually used the show in the classroom? I mean, and if so, in what way? Well, last year we actually used the uh, the show as an opportunity for uh, for our Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College for our fellows. We have undergraduate fellows there um, to to actually uh, write a little bit about the show. Uh, so they wrote on our blog. Uh, they also. Um, they also were involved in kind of live tweeting the show as it was ongoing. Mm -hmm. So uh, so we were encouraging our students to watch it and to talk about the show um, and, and use it as kind of a platform to inspire more discussion about not only the Civil War, but some of these other issues. And in particular, the kind of the, the medical history of the Civil War, which sometimes is overlooked. What did your students take away from the show? Uh, they very much enjoyed it. I, I mean, I think that uh, what I... What I was kind of inspired by is the fact that they were debating things, not just aspects of material culture, but then were kind of thinking and asking questions about uh, how how some of these broader themes of history are actually interplaying within the show. Mm -hmm. Lisa, that has to uh, be kind of satisfying to you as a producer. Oh, it's tremendously satisfying. I'd love to read everything they wrote. <laughs> you could send it my way. <laughs> but, you know, some of the things that Dr. Isherwood discussed there, the dynamic of women, mm -hmm. and there are some strong women characters, uh, you know, in, in the program, and we will get on to, uh, you know, some of the African-American characters as well. But uh, going in, and you mentioned Nurse Finney, and she is yep. one of the, the, the main characters. Did you kind of work around her as like, okay, this is a strong person, a strong character. This is kind of like the backbone of the show. Well, I have to say, you know, very often in, in, um, if you're pitching a show, um, a fictional show, you kind of have to make up a strong female character, uh, you know, at the heart of it. And the beauty of this one is, you know, when I started doing the research, I came across literally hundreds of accounts written by these female volunteer nurses during the Civil War. And they all had, had the one thing in common, and that was you could feel 
the strength. You could feel the strength of their conviction. You could, you could feel the strength of their determination. And, and they all had a sense of humor. And so that truly was the, the, the inspiration for the series. You know, and certainly, yeah. Go go, no, what I was going to say is that uh, having a sense of humor, uh, you know, again, when many of us think about, uh, you know, those, those four years, those bleak war years, you wonder how anyone could laugh. But knowing human nature, sometimes if you don't have a sense of humor, you'd pull your hair out. You wouldn't want oh, to be absolutely. in that situation. Absolutely. Think of MASH. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and MASH was certainly one of our inspirations. You know, you ha- and I've talked to many doctors and nurses who, who have worked in combat zones, and if you don't bring a sense of humor to the table every day, you don't survive because it is a bleak environment. And when we read these memoirs, they all had a sense of humor. Uh, you know, even the doctor's accounts had a sense of humor. And so uh, it, we, we, it wasn't a stretch to, to lace in that sense of humor. And, and it's important to us. Um, you know, I think, I think drama works best when you can make people laugh and cry, yeah. if that makes sense. Dr. Ishwood, what about the soldiers on the front lines? I mean, from time, we've seen photographs sometimes where they're clowning around a little bit. Uh, but same thing, that some of the horror, some of the things that uh, these both men and women saw, did they laugh? Yes, um... That, that's an interesting question for a number of reasons, um, because you do you tend to think that when a soldier goes off to war and, you know, the experience of the Civil War was so grim and so uh, so terrible for soldiers that um, that that how could anybody laugh kind of on a battlefield? Right, right. But laughter and humor is an important coping mechanism, uh, in particular, the idea of like gallows humor, for example, for soldiers in time of war. It has been during the American Civil War. It certainly is now um, one of the many ways in which soldiers actually deal with a very stressful environment. Mm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about uh, Mercy Street, which uh, makes its season two debut January 22nd on PBS and WITF-TV. Joining us today is Lisa Wolfinger, who is the co-creator and executive producer of Mercy Street. Audrey Davis, Mercy Street historical consultant and director of the Alexandria Black History Museum. And Dr. Ian Isherwood, who is a visiting professor of war and memory studies at Gettysburg College. If you have a question or a comment, were you a fan of the show? Maybe uh, you have a question about the one of the characters, where the series, uh, maybe something you saw last year and where it's going this year. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, Lisa, I'm not going to review the entire first season, but where you did leave off last year, it seems like, you know, there was, uh, in the first few episodes, establishing the characters so that uh, uh, the viewers got to know them a little bit. But uh, the first season kind of ended up with uh, a, a plot against the life of uh, President Abraham Lincoln, who was visiting the hospital. I'm not going to give anything away other than we do know that uh, it was not successful since uh, we're talking about early in, in, in the Civil War. But how does that lead into season two? 
Well, our second season begins immediately where we left off, literally 20 minutes after where we left off. So it's the day the Lincolns visit the hospital, and certainly Frank has a lot of explaining to do. Uh, And then we proceed over the next several months through the summer and fall of 1862. So we cover the Union failure on the peninsula, uh, the consequences of battles like uh, Second Manassas, uh, Chantilly, all the way through Antietam, which of course was the most devastating single day in American military history. And then we end with the preliminary emancipation proclamation, September 22nd. So in many ways, we bring the war closer this season, and we explore how it directly impacts our characters. Now, Frank, for those who don't know, uh, Frank, uh, you know, was very well known in the community in Alexandria, but uh, he was trying to carry out the assassination on President Lincoln, but was unsuccessful. But maybe you can explain why. Um, well, there might be viewers out there who haven't seen the episode. Okay, so okay. Well, I want to be a little yeah, don't, yeah, don't give. Okay, don't give too much <laughs> but, away. But I, but I will say this. Um, you know, people can, can point to this plot line and say, oh, that feels a bit far-fetched. But we actually, th- that whole storyline is based on an article we found in the Alexandria Gazette. And there were rumors that there was a plot to blow up Mansion House Hospital. And, uh, and they, it was a, it's a fascinating article. And so we took that story and, and we wove it together with the Frank Stringfellow storyline, who was a notorious Confederate scout. And, uh, and so we ended up with the, uh, the story that uh, develops in episode six of season one and then continues. Uh, we, we certainly we see the consequences of those actions in the first episode of season two. And I, and I, do, I should say that uh, season two is much more exciting than season one. So. Well, and I shouldn't have asked you that question because I didn't want you to divulge too much out there. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, when I was saying that we know how it ends up, we know that President Lincoln does survive that, that attempt. Correct. But uh, yes. there's a lot of excitement uh, along the way there. Now, when you say that there was a storyline, was it against Lincoln or just blowing up the hospital? hospital um, the well the uh, the article itself the apparently they found barrels of gunpowder in the basement of Mansion House Hospital and so you know they some 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 uh, some journalists with an overactive imagination put two and two together and decided that somebody was trying to blow up the hospital um, you know I think they dismissed it as a rumor several weeks later but um, but it was certainly an interesting story, and it inspired us to create the storyline that we did. And I will say, and, I, and I, it's not a spoiler, but we do introduce some new characters in season two, and one of them is uh, famous real-life detective Alan Pinkerton, who, of course, was the head of the Union Intelligence Service. And we imagine that he is accompanying the president on this particular visit, and, uh, and, and I can't say much more. But he does, <laughs> he does feature prominently in season two, and he becomes a thorn in the side of the Green family. Let me... Uh... Yeah. Let me play a clip here from uh, the, the first episode, and Audrey Davis is going to have you comment on this. You have the makings of an epidemic here. Smallpox. Something isn't done. Smallpox? I know it has been a problem in Washington among the Negroes. Not only Washington, sir, and not only the Negroes. I'd like to establish a quarantine tent outside this hospital. Bring the smallpox closer. We'll isolate it to prevent spread. We have seen typhoid. No smallpox yet. When the disease comes... It is already here, sir. I've seen signs of it within your own staff. We do not treat Negro patients. It is not a Negro disease, sir. 
Lisa, before we uh, turn to Audrey to talk talk about the his- historical significance of this, uh, describe the scene, if you would. Yes, uh, this is a scene that, that actually follows the, the first time we meet Charlotte Jenkins, this uh, black northern abolitionist who shows up in town. And uh, she... Um, as she arrives in town, she's a little distracted. She sees some contraband kids running down the road into an alleyway, and she glimpses at a contraband camp uh, down at the end of the alleyway. So she she stops the carriage and walks out there and sees uh, all all these people, these you know hundreds of, of refugees, and uh, very quickly realizes that uh, quite a few of them are sick. And so that, that takes her into the, hosp- the world of the hospital, uh, where we find out very quickly that she knows Mary Finney, and that's why she's there in Alexandria. Mary Finney wrote letters uh, to her abolitionist friends, and, uh, and that inspired this young lady to come down and help. And so that... That's the setup for the, the particular the, the scene that you just played. Audrey Davis, uh, I'm not going to ask, uh, you know, how historically accurate that was, but, uh, you know, a, a few of the things that were said there that, uh, first of all, in the, in the hospital, that uh, they do not treat Negroes. I assume that is historically accurate. Yes, yes. I mean, there was a, a segregation. There were contraband hospitals in Alexandria. And actually, a very large complex was built in 1864, a barracks and the Loverture Hospital, which we just dedicated a state historic marker for about uh, four weeks ago in Alexandria. But there were smaller uh, contraband hospitals around the city, and there were so many diseases that were affecting the contraband population, dysentery, cholera, typhoid, but smallpox as well. And smallpox was not taken as seriously as a... It was thought of as a as a black disease. It was it was thought of as a black disease. That, that African Americans, by their living in close proximity, were were spreading this disease, and then eventually, it was you know getting into the white population. But as Charlotte was saying, this is a disease that affects everyone. It's not a black disease, and there were actually even um, some of the doctors who were dealing with the the smallpox situation in Alexandria had had a horrible idea of taking the orphan contraband children and putting them in a smallpox hospital to minister to the patients. And Harriet Jacobs and Julia Wilbur, who were at, who were in Alexandria at the time, were you know, protesting this action, saying, absolutely not, you're not putting children in a smallpox hospital. But they were definitely dealing with smallpox as a disease and having to keep some of their work very quiet because you can read in their letters and diary entries that if the people they were living with knew that they were dealing with smallpox patients, they would lose their housing. And, people wouldn't associate. And, and smallpox in, in those days, that could be a, a fatal disease. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 How was it treated back then? I, I actually, I am not a, a medical expert, so I really, I know that there were vaccinations that were available, but as to the day-to-day treatment with what they were doing in the hospitals, I'm sorry, I'm not I'm probably the best expert. To Lisa, <laughs> Lisa, is this something you had to consult on? Yes, absolutely. Um, we work closely with Jim Downs, who wrote a wonderful book called Sick from Freedom. And, uh, and then, of, of course, we have um, medical historians we work very closely with, including Shauna Devine and uh, Dr. Tizano at the Cleveland Clinic. 
And, you know, we, we certainly did a lot of digging. Smallpox was very prevalent, uh, both, and, and certainly Ian can talk about this, uh, among the, the soldiers and, uh, and also the contraband population. Uh, certainly, you know, there was, people were vaccinated, but, uh, and in fact, many uh, enslaved people were vaccinated on the plantations, but the vaccine didn't last very long. And, uh, and sometimes it, it wasn't an active strain, so it wasn't foolproof. Yeah. And, and there really wasn't much they could do to help people with smallpox other than keep them comfortable. When you say that uh, even the enslaved people were uh, vaccinated on, on plantations, my guess is uh, there are a couple reasons for that. One, that it did spread, spread to the plantation owners and mm-hmm. uh, the whites living there. And two, that the enslaved people were considered property that uh, they didn't want to lose their property, not because out of compassion. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It was an investment for the owners to make sure their enslaved population remained healthy. Ian, and this is another part of this era that uh, many people probably don't focus a whole lot on, and that is not necessarily uh, smallpox specifically, but disease. Disease amongst even the soldiers that uh, killed. Am I accurate in saying that many more died of disease than on the battlefield? Yeah, and roughly a two-to-one ratio. That much? Yeah, um, and part of it is that uh, part of it is that when you get like a large group of people, um, uh, especially rural people uh, who are not used to being exposed to different diseases, when you get them in close proximity to each other, you see kind of a first wave type of epidemic. So that's one side of it that you see things like smallpox or things even like measles that could um, that could lay up um, whole companies or whole regiments at a time. But then as soldiers began to march and went on campaign, their bodies were then. Uh, subject to a host of uh, a host of other ailments, uh, diarrhea and di- and dysentery are probably the um, the number one and two killers of soldiers on campaign from poor water, from poor food, um, and from just uh, exhaustion and poor physical care. You know, and I hate to put this vision in people's minds, but uh, uh, you know, when you're talking about those diseases and a lot of them. Uh, have to do with the digestive system, and obviously there weren't uh, restrooms along the way. You know, and maybe you can comment on this, but I had read, and I know part of it was in The Killer Angels, which is historical fiction, uh, that Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg was not feeling very well uh, over those three days. And there's been some speculation that uh, part of the reason that he made some bad decisions at Gettysburg was because he wasn't in the best physical shape at that time. Uh, I don't even want to kind of speculate on uh, on on Lee's digestive tract at <laughs> Gettysburg. But what I um, um, okay, Lisa, there's a whole other film. <laughs> um, but, you know, one thing to keep in mind is when, when we have this image of, like, Civil War generals or commanders or, or Civil War soldiers is that they, they, by and large, were a very fatigued and sickly group on the march. And it's something just to keep in mind that, um, that when they're going into battle, there are huge numbers of soldiers that are, that are not feeling well, that are terribly dehydrated. And it takes an, a spectacular level of human endurance just to be able to overcome those things and then to be able to go into a firefight. Okay, well, I'm not going to... Add, go ahead. Sorry, if I could just add very quickly that um, the, the female volunteers and the doctors were also prone to these, these diseases. 
Uh, I mean, they were they were helping uh, sick soldiers with typhoid and all these other contagious diseases, and so it was inevitable that they uh, they themselves contracted the diseases. And in fact, if you look at Louisa May Alcott, who worked as a nurse during the Civil War in Union Hospital in Washington City, she developed she only lasted three months and then developed typhoid and and went home. Mary Finney, um, the the real Mary Finney, developed typhoid and and had to go home. I mean, it was almost impossible not to contract a disease. So you can, and they were all tired. They were all fatigued, and they were all were eating uh, terrible food, and and most of the time, not enough of it. And you know, today it's it's commonplace. I mean, it's it's something we do. You you see, every five minutes, where a doctor, a nurse, washing their hands, using gloves, mm-hmm. wearing a mask, that kind of thing. Back in those days, I imagine that the only way that the you know, an operating room, for example, or where a surgery was conducted, the only thing they would do is wash their hands, right? Yes. I mean, you know, we, we tend to think of the Civil War as medieval medicine, but it, but in many ways it wasn't. It was really on the cusp of of becoming modern medicine or stepping into the era of modern medicine. So there was an awareness that sanitation hygiene was important, but they didn't understand uh, antiseptic surgery, certainly. Mm-hmm. And Audrey, I'm curious, and I don't know whether you have information on this or not, but we were talking about uh, the doctors and the nurses, and we talked about the soldiers in the battlefield. What about uh, the the blacks, the contraband, the slaves? Uh, what kind of physical condition were they in? Well, they were actually in very, I mean, looking at any enslaved population, you're not in the best of health anyway. You're given enough food so that you can survive and do your work, but I wouldn't say that they were in optimum health. And so then you have them leaving and, and escaping and trying to get uh, to the Union, and so they're coming into the city tired, hungry, sick, and many of them die in Alexandria very quickly. There's not enough infrastructure in the city to house them. They're setting up shanty towns around the city. There's not adequate water, as you were saying, with the dysentery. There, they're not adequate um, facilities. There, there are no lavatories, bathrooms. There's nothing like that. So you're seeing people die in great numbers, and the city was at first burying them and just paupers' graves um, all around the city, and then eventually it gets to be so bad, the Army establishes a contraband cemetery in 1864, and we just dedicated that site as a memorial in 2014, and we have a record of the almost 2,000 men, women, and children who are buried there, and unfortunately many of the burials at that cemetery are of children under the age of 16. I have to say that uh, just in this short conversation we're having today, I'm amazed at uh, how much has been left to you, the letters written, the diaries, uh, those kind of things, something that uh, I don't know how the people in the future are going to connect to our digital uh, you know, memories and diaries that we have today, but th- that seems to be a real good source for the history. Would you, would you agree with that? I, I think absolutely. I mean, I think there, yeah. there's so much in Alexandria that still survives that people can investigate. We do have the diaries of Julia Wilbur. We do have the letters of Harriet Jacobs. We have so many narratives that tell us. Uh, we wish we had more contraband stories. I mean, unfortunately, we don't have a huge number of those, but we have other people reporting on the crisis. And you can see so many similarities to refugee crisis, crises today. And 
the way the contraband are reported on. They're, they're a danger to the city. They're a danger to, to white men and, and women. And it's just that these are people who want to gain freedom. They want a better life for their families. They want what every American wants. They want to be a part of the culture. They want to survive, and they want to be educated. And we encourage people, if you love Mercy Street, to visit Alexandria, to come by Carlisle House and see their exhibit on the, the Mansion House Hospital, to visit the slave pens we have in Alexandria, to visit our museum, the Black History Museum, to walk the streets and experience the people and places that you will see in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Richard, let's talk about that a little bit more of, of how much history we have gotten from what was written by the people who lived at that time. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, as someone who uh, is a history buff, a Civil War buff in particular, that uh, I'd be thrilled to be able to hold the same paper that someone uh, has, has written on 155 years ago. But You've probably done that. What do you get out of those letters? Well, you get impressions, and I mean, you 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 never get kind of the the whole story from a person's letter or from their diary entries. And if you just think about the things that that we all record about our own lives, like in our own diaries, that's never kind of the whole story. And you know, when you write a letter home to somebody, you're also tailoring the letter to the person in which you're writing. You're writing things that you'd want them to know. You're writing, if you're writing your parents, for example, dear mother, I'm not up to, I'm not up to bad things. I'm up to only kind of good things, you know, here in the army, et cetera. But but at the same time, I'd say that um, when you go through enough of the documentation, it really be it really begins to be able to to form a, a broader picture for you. You you understand how people are using language. You understand ideas of what things socially that they value, and that's what's really important to kind of creating creating a narrative like this is understanding the impression of the age. Uh, Lisa, it sounds as if you have gotten a whole lot from uh, the documents that have been left. Yes, I mean, I, you know, listening to Ian and Audrey talk about, uh, about this, this written material, this primary source material, you know, what strikes me is Today, I think we communicate visually. We take pictures and we send pictures. In those days, they couldn't do that, so they had to write. Uh, they had to write with with lots of detail, because that was the only way to to really describe the world that they were in, they were living in. So whether it was a soldier writing back to his mother, um, or a female volunteer nurse writing about her experiences to you know to her mother or father back in you know wherever she was from, you know they they really they it, it was just a different world and it was it was a different way of communicating. But for us now to have access to those words and that level of of written detail is you know is fabulous. I mean, would it be wonderful if we had you know, if, if people had been taking snapshots and we had those snapshots, sure, <laughs> no doubt. But, um, you know, but I think we get um, an emotional subtext in these letters that you can't possibly get from a photograph. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Before we back, get back into our conversation about Mercy Street Season 2, I uh, want to tell you about an exciting event that's uh, coming up next month, uh, a free preview screening uh, of Mercy Street, the second season of Mercy Street. It's in a, a beautiful state-of-the-art theater in uh, Gettysburg. Uh, you can explore the Gettysburg National Military Park Museum and its special exhibits during an elegant cocktail reception. Enjoy a specially-themed Civil War-era four-course dinner with paired wine, rub elbows with series co-creator Lisa Wolfinger and series historian Audrey Davis, and hear more about the real-life drama of the era of the era from Lisa and Audrey over dessert. Now, if you're interested in this, we'd like to hear from you. We'd like to see you. Uh, for tickets, you can call one eight hundred. Excuse me, I was about to do my eight hundred number seven one seven nine ten seven one seven nine one zero two eight seven two seven one seven nine one zero two eight seven two and uh, or you can learn more about it if you have other questions at witf.org uh, this is coming up on uh, january 14th uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you i'll be there i'll be having a conversation leading a, a panel discussion uh, after we see the, uh, the 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 sneak preview uh, but you get to see the sneak preview uh, there's cocktails dinner dessert Talk to Lisa, also talk to Audrey. So uh, I, I think if you're interested in, uh, even if you're not a history buff, but uh, just like the show, the drama of the show, that you would enjoy this, 717-910-2872. Our guest today, as we're talking about Mercy Street, is Lisa Wolfinger, who is the co-creator and executive producer, producer of Mercy Street, Audrey Davis, Mercy Street historical consultant and director of the Alexandria Black History Museum, and Dr. Dr. Ian Isherwood, who is a visiting assistant professor of war and memory studies at Gettysburg College. We have a few minutes left if you have a question or comment. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. We've got a comment here from Bob in Chambersburg who said that his understanding is that the Surgeon General of the Union Army was a woman, and this was n not discovered until after her death. Uh, Lisa, are you aware of that? Um, I believe the Surgeon General at the time was uh, uh, William Hammond, but Ian can definitely jump in here. It was William Hammond. It was William Hammond. Okay, maybe not Surgeon General, but were there women uh, surgeons? Well, perhaps. Well, perhaps he's thinking of Dorothea Dix, who was in charge of um, the female volunteer nurses for the Union Army for, for a short time um, until her enemies pretty much got rid of her. Um, there was a, a, a woman doctor, Elizabeth Blackwell, uh, but she, uh, she was practicing in New York. Uh, she did train some uh, women who ended up volunteering as nurses, but no, they were no women uh, surgeons working for the Union Army, that's for sure. Okay. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to mention, Lisa and, and Audrey, to uh, come into the conversation here, too, as, as well. Uh, you know, I have not seen, uh, you know, the episodes coming up in season two, but just from what I've seen the trailer and uh, the storyline, it appears there's going to be more attention this year. Not that there wasn't in season one, but even more so on season two on the African-Americans, the, the contraband, the, the, the free blacks. At least, would you agree with that? Um, yes. I mean, I think, you know, we, we try, we have a very large cast 
So we have a you know a a, a group of players, if you will, and uh, we try very hard to give each character um, you know a, a storyline that has has equal weight. So in some episodes, we might focus more on certain characters than others, but if you look at the overall arc of season two, I think each character, you know, gets their moment in the sun. Certainly, um, this new character, Charlotte Jenkins, features prominently and, uh, and, and interacts with uh, Samuel Diggs. And those two characters, along with Belinda Gibson, who is the Green's servant, uh, end up having a very interesting storyline that uh, that plays off of this uh, this this chapter in contraband history, um, specifically in Alexandria. Uh, we have a phone call here from Gloria, and she describes her question as a bit of a strange one. But uh, Gloria, I think it's a good one. Go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, when I've been reading some accounts of Gettysburg, particularly, one of the issues that comes up is the impossible stench, the smell of decaying horses and human bodies, and how people would just fall on the ground throwing up and almost choke on their own vomit. It was so disgusting and so overwhelming. And I'm wondering if they thought about that or what they do about that in, in staging and recreating the challenges, the difficulties of dealing with the aftermath of this this particular horrendous battle. Mm. Hey, but thank you, no. thank you very much for your call. I mean, it's it's a basic question, uh, and she's right that uh, the aftermath of these battles that uh, you know we talked about Gettysburg having an odor about it for for how long, Doctor Isherwood? I mean, it was months, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, I, I mean, all of the major battles have absolute carnage around them, so they all. They all have not only um, the dead, the dead soldiers that have to be buried, but of course um, thousands of dead horses and mules that would also need to be burned or buried. Mm -hmm. Lisa, what about that in the hospital? Oh, the smells in the hospital were, were quite revolting. <laughs> um, you know, we, we show a little bit of that in the beginning of season one when Mary Finney walks into that world and, you know, she, she has a conversation with the head of the hospital over a young man who clearly has a gangrenous leg. You know, she holds a, a handkerchief to her nose. I mean, at a certain point we had to lose that because these ladies got used to it. These, these, not just the ladies, but everybody working in the hospital got used to the smells. Uh, but we do touch on that a little bit in season two as well. You know, when we have visitors coming into the hospital, we, we see them cover, covering their noses with handkerchiefs. Certainly it was much worse in the summer, and Gettysburg, of course, happened in, in uh, you know, late, late, well, the summer. So, um, um, yes, it was, it was a nasty, nasty, uh, odiferous time, that's for sure. Mm. Okay, so, you know, I'm thinking you've mentioned the Green family uh, several times. The Green family really does make for a good storyline because uh, in Alexandria especially, as you've described, Alexandria, uh, you know, this was a, 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 fa a family that was... Uh, loyal to the Confederacy, but only to a point because they didn't want to lose everything they had. There was the, the, the question of whether to sign an oath of loyalty to the Union. So without divulging too much, Lisa, what can we look forward to from the Green family this year? Well, I tell you, the Green family struggles. They continue to struggle in various ways with their predicament. Um, Emma grows increasingly more pacifist. 
and Miss Alice becomes more and more partisan, spying for uh, the Knights of the Golden Circle. And her stories are very much inspired by a real Confederate spy, 17-year-old Belle Boyd. And I'm sure Ian can, can tell you some colorful stories about Miss Belle Boyd. Um, Jimmy is, um, well, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, he... he He's kind of going over to the dark side a little bit, <laughs> so you'll see what happens to him. And of course, we left James in prison, uh, and uh, and I and I don't want to give away too much there, but that storyline evolves, and uh, and is quite interesting. So um, yes, I'm I'm going to throw it over to Ian to talk about Bell Boyd because Alice is really her her spying activities are quite interesting in season two. Yeah, Ian uh, Bell Boyd. Uh, one of my first radio jobs was in Front Royal, Virginia, which uh, Bell Boyd called home. But tell, talk about Bell Boyd. I actually don't really know that much about Bell Boyd. Um, you know, she's known as a great Confederate spy, kind of the Cleopatra of the South. Um, has a number of different um, different annex that she gets up to. But uh, but I think kind of the the broader point here is that the story is trying to interact more with with issues of spying and espionage and intelligence um, within the series that, that, you know, we typically don't see. And there is the question of sensationalism, too, um, with, with that. But at the same time, I think that the introduction of kind of more spying, the introduction of Pinkerton is something to look forward to, I think, in the next season. Mm -hmm. Now, Lisa, you had mentioned that... Uh, now, I uh, the, the, the character's name escapes me. I'm sorry. I have it right in front of me. Uh, who was becoming more of a pacifist? Oh, Emma. Emma, Emma yeah. Green. Yeah, just from what I've seen, the, the trailer, uh, she, you know, when she first started at the hospital, she was, uh, you know, very much uh, a Confederate sympathizer. And uh, she seems to be, you know, has got some compassion for uh, the patients. I mean, at first she just wanted to work with the Confederate patients. Uh, they didn't really even want to work on them there. But, uh, you know, she does seem to be growing as a character. Yes, very much so. And uh, we see her evolve in season two. And it's not that she's, um, you know, going over to the other side, you know, going over to the side of the enemy, but, but she is because of her work as a volunteer nurse. And I think because of the influence of uh, a young man who, um, I can't give away too much, but certainly is, is a friend to her in the hospital, the chaplain, she does become more pacifist and does begin to question uh, the war and you know, is war really worth it? Um, so, so that's quite interesting. So, you know, again, with all these characters, we it gives us opportunities to uh, to give voice to different themes, different ideas, and different different life experiences. You know, I mentioned earlier that uh, Alexandria and Mansion House Hospital really gave us a cauldron of conflicting voices, and that's what excited us about this series. Well, I want to thank the three of you for being with us today. Lisa Wolfinger is co-creator and executive producer of Mercy Street. Audrey Davis is a historical consultant with the series and director of the Alexandria Black History Museum. And Dr. Ian Ishawood is a visiting assistant professor of war and memory studies at Gettysburg College. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. And 
and we will see you next month. And let me just tell you uh, out there listening that uh, if you would like to attend WITF's uh, free uh, screening, uh, or I should say the screening, the preview screening uh, in Gettysburg, we'd like to hear from you. Number to call is 717-910-2872. You can preview the Second Street of Mercy Street, uh, explore the Gettysburg National Military Park Museum, enjoy a specially themed Civil War era four-course dinner with paired wine, rub elbows with uh, series co-creator Lisa Wolfinger and Audrey Davis. Uh, I also should mention that Mercy Street on WITF is supported by the Gettysburg Foundation and the Capital Area Online Learning Association. Tomorrow we talk about heroin.